The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, I believe it's important for us from time to time to study church history. It is essential for us as a body of believers to, to never really forget what God has done in the life of the church. And it's important for us to look back on the lives of those who have gone before us and what God has done in them and through them to imitate uh, their virtues, but also to make sure that we don't miss maybe some of the mistakes that they've made as well. And so it's important for us from time to time to really evaluate church history. And I believe one of the best ways that we can do that is to go back and study what God did during the Protestant Reformation. The date was October 31, 1517. And the place was Wittenberg, Germany. And the man was a little-known monk at that time by the name of Martin Luther. And in his hand, one hand, he grabbed a, a hammer, and in the other hand, he had a piece of paper. And he walked into the street and straight over to the castle church where he promptly nailed that piece of paper to the doors of the Wittenberg Castle. Now, in that day, that wouldn't have been a strange occurrence. Because in that day, the door of the castle, the door of the local church, was essentially the meeting place. It was the bulletin board of the community. It was the place where people would post notices and they would post things that they would want to interact with people over. And they would meet and they would gather there to talk about what was posted. The message, though, on this particular piece of paper would change the world. Because as we know today, what was written on that piece of paper was what is now known as the 95 Theses, the 95 points of disagreement that Martin Luther had with the church, the medieval church. Martin Luther was a monk and a professor of theology. And as he began to study for his professorship and in his professorship, he, he studied the Word of God. And the more he studied the Scriptures, the more he studied the Word of God, the more he disagreed with the doctrine of the medieval Catholic Church. The more he immersed himself in the Scriptures, the more clear the discrepancies became with the clear and simple proclamation of the Word of God and what he saw being practiced in the church. So Luther began writing down these inconsistencies. He never had a dream of launching a reformation. He never had a dream of really starting a worldwide revolution. But what Luther did was simply to begin writing down his newly discovered views that were coming from the scripture. These precious doctrines that began to emerge for him from the study of the Word of God. And he simply wanted to engage in conversation with other leaders, other church leaders, about what he was learning. Without his knowledge, someone took what was posted on the door of that castle and made a copy of it. And they had a newly invented thing called the, the press, the printing press. And someone grabbed that document and they began making copies of it and they began spreading this document through Germany. And so suddenly Luther's the, the, the center of conversation in his own country. From cathedrals and great stone castles of his homeland to the pubs and peasant cottages, everyone was talking about Luther's ideas. What was he saying? What was this all about? Little did Luther know that this actions would spawn a revolution that would really spread literally around the world. 
And today, there are 600 million Protestants that can, in a sense, trace their their heritage and their love for the truths of Scripture back to the Reformers that started with Martin Luther in 1517, of which Maranatha the Bible Church is a part as well. We know, though, that the Reformation did not happen by one man on one day. We, we simply can't condone or con- condense it down into a single event on one day with one man. It's a broader event than that. To be sure, it began on October 31, 1517, a day that we normally associate with Halloween in our country, but a day that really God used to radically transform the church. It was bigger than just that date, though. It spawned two centuries. It began in the 1500s and spilled over into the 1600s. But it began well before that with some forerunners of the Reformation, men like John Wycliffe and John Huss and Peter Waldo, these people who really planted the seeds for the coming Reformation. It involved a whole cast of characters, not just Martin Luther. It involved men like John Calvin. Ulrich Zwingli, Thomas Cranmer, John Knox, John Bunyan, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and even a woman by the name of Lady Jane Grey, who was a king, a queen rather, for nine days in Britain. It traveled across the world. It began in Germany, spread across Europe, Switzerland, France, crossing the English Channel to Britain and Scotland, and eventually came over to the New World. And we today are a part of the heritage of this great Protestant Reformation. I need to tell you just a little bit about this Reformation, for we're familiar primarily with it and the effect it had upon the church, but you need to know that this Reformation was much broader than just changes within the church. It had a huge effect upon the entire way the world operated. Let me just give you some ways that this impacted the world. It had an effect upon education. Prior to the Reformation, education was not valued highly. In fact, the church of that day wanted to keep people from learning to read and write, for if they could keep them from that, then they would keep the common man unable to really interact with the scriptures. And so what happened was there was a a, a rediscovery of the joy of education. People began to read. People began to write. People began to learn. People began to study the sciences, and they began to study writing and math and history and economics, all for the purpose, ultimately, of pointing to the truth of God's word and seeing the veracity of the scriptures played out in all of these different disciplines. So it had a huge effect upon the educational system. The Reformation also had an effect politically. And in that day, you need to understand that the medieval structure of that day was was really a, a constant struggle for power. That, that people were fighting for some right to rule with divine power. And so in their structure of authority, power was usually had by, held by an absolute monarch or a king. Same was true in the church of that day, where the view of absolute power was held by the pope claiming absolute authority over the church. And so there was this state in which there was a constant struggle for power, people wanting to to gain power, to be in charge, to possess absolute authority. The reformers came along and they began to study the scriptures and they began to see that there is something called the priesthood of all believers. We all have an ability to weigh in on some of these issues. And so what began to happen was the seeds of democracy were, were sown within the Protestant Reformation. The form of government that we possess even today in our country can be traced back to partly the Reformation, which led to a rise of democracy. Huge implications by the Reformation. 
education, politics, economics were affected by the Reformation. In that day, the kings and the monarchs relied on their peasants and their vassals to to secure for them their prosperity and give them their money and their wealth. And so really in that day you had two classes of people. You had the the wealthy people and you had the poor people and none in between. Well, the Reformation changed all that as, as people began to produce products and sell products and this seeds of capitalism began to be instilled within that culture and there was labor and capital trade and investments and private ownership and free market. And this whole system began to be developed under the Protestant Reformation. Hard work came to be valued. You need to know that before that, The only work that was deemed blessed by God was the work of the ministry. So if you weren't a pastor or a minister, you just kind of labored and did your thing, and that was about it. But under the Protestant Reformation, they began to restore dignity and worth to all jobs and all vocations. And people began to see that there's value in that. And even in the most menial job, you can serve the Lord and bring him honor and glory. And so under the Protestant Reformation, there was restored this this influence upon the importance of work and labor and a whole new class, a middle class was formed in the Protestant Reformation. Huge implications for politics, for education, for economics. Without a doubt, though, the most obvious and greatest impact of the Reformation was simply in the church. I told you before that there was no singing in the church before the Reformation. And so men began to see the, the, the scriptures and began to study the scriptures and began to write songs that were then put into the church. And the body of Christ began to sing sound doctrine and sing sound theology. So a man by the name of John Huss, who was actually put to death and condemned as a heretic, were putting songs and music back in the church. The reformers returned to the sermon, returned the sermon to the primacy that it deserved in the church. It had been lost to the celebration of the mass within the Catholic Church, and so the, the proclamation of God's word returned to the pulpit. And this was reflected in the very structure and furniture and orientation of the the church itself. When you walked into a church of that day, the front and center piece of furniture was the altar where the, the mass was celebrated and Christ was sacrificed on a weekly basis. But not, that all changed now under the Protestant Reformation as the pulpit was restored, restored to the centerpiece of the structure of the churches. The word of God was recovered. Preaching was recovered. Most importantly, though, the Reformation recovered the true gospel. The Reformation recovered the true gospel of Jesus Christ on how sinners can have a relationship with God. Because prior to that, what Rome was saying was in order to be saved, he needed to go through Mary and he needed to go through a priest and he needed to go through a a bishop or the church or the pope. He needed to adhere to this great hierarchical structure. There were all these obstacles in the way that kept you from getting to God. It was... It was scripture plus church tradition. It was scripture plus the Pope. It was scripture plus the councils. It was salvation by grace, but grace plus works. It was salvation by faith, but faith plus plus works. It was all these additions that were added to the gospel. And so what you had in that day was the gospel being shrouded, being hard to see through all this external scaffolding that had been erected around 
it. Luther and the other reformers came along, though, and they said, no, it's the Scripture alone that's authoritative. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Salvation is through Christ alone. Salvation is for the glory of God alone. And the, script, the Scriptures became front and centerpiece of the Reformation, and they came and they recovered the plain message of the New Testament. That was really the joy of the Protestant Reformation is sought to restore true religion of the mind and the heart and the hands by reclaiming the unadulterated gospel. And so what took place in the Reformation was all that stuff was cleared away, and what you had as a result was the clear, simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of this movement came five watchwords, words that really summarize and characterize for us what took place in this movement. And those are the five solas that we've introduced to you today. The word sola is the Latin word for alone. And these five solas really capture, in essence, what the scriptures teach about the gospel. Sola scriptura, as we've said so far, is scripture alone. It is the word of God alone that is going to declare for us and teach us what we need to know and understand about God and our way to access him. You see, after that point, Rome said it was scripture plus, scripture plus tradition, scripture plus the pope, scripture plus the church, plus the councils. And the reformers, as they began to, to study and come face to face with the word of God, they began to see its truthfulness and its authority and its sufficiency and its accuracy and its immutability and its invincibility. And they said, no, we will preach and teach the word of God alone. They wanted to see the word of God put in the hands of the people. They worked hard to, to translate the scriptures and put it into the churches. It was preached again and every effort was made to ground their theology and practice in the word of God. That's sola scriptura. Sola fide. It's by faith alone. Roman had added different works and efforts and different things you needed to do to get to God. You could buy forgiveness through the paying of indulgences and you could do your effort and your human works to try and accomplish God's favor or secure God's favor. And the reformers came along and they said, no, salvation, justification is by grace alone, in faith alone. It's only by faith. It's, it's by faith where we secure ourselves to the work of Christ. That's sola fide. Sola gratia is by grace alone. It's by grace that we receive God's kindness and his mercy and salvation. It's by grace that we receive the forgiveness that comes to us through Christ. It's by grace. It's, it's by grace through faith. Solus Christus is the fourth one. Solus Christus is the way of saying it's by Christ alone. It's not by any kind of other rites or, or indulgences or church membership or church attendance or baptism or the sacraments or anything like that. It is through Christ alone and his finished work upon the cross. His atonement was sufficient. His sacrifice was sufficient. His work was sufficient. And his work alone was, was able to secure for us our salvation and grant us access to the Father. This is Solus Christus. And the last one is solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Why does God save us? 
Why does God redeem us? Why does God do anything? It's for his glory alone, not for our glory, not for our pleasure, not for our purposes. It's ultimately for his glory, and the glory belongs to God alone. And that's what the reformers sought to do. All things for the glory of God alone. These are the five solas of the Reformation. And perhaps you can, can be illustrated by, by thinking about a structure, a, a foundation and an ancient building, maybe with three pillars and a, and a ceiling on it or a roof on it. And if you can imagine each of those three pillars, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, on the roof, soli deo gloria. But all of that is founded upon the foundation, which is sola scriptura. That is the Reformation in a nutshell. It is by grace alone by which we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And all of that truth is, is, is bedded down under the bedrock of the sufficiency of the scriptures. What I want to do for a few minutes this morning is just walk you through an understanding of sola scriptura. Just the first one. If you want the rest, you have to come back over the next four years, all right? That's our way to, to hook you and get you to keep coming back over the years. So we'll do the sola fide next year, sola gratia the year after that. So we'll just see you over the next few years. What I want to do is I just want to focus on sola scriptura today. And I want you to see what the reformers saw in the scriptures that caused them to take a stand upon the word of God and some of them even lose their life for this great doctrine. Perhaps the best thing I can do is just to let some of the reformers speak for themselves. Listen to Martin Luther speaking about the authority and the sufficiency and the invincibility of the word of God. He said, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. Pretty simple. Reading the word of God or hearing from God, listening to God speak does not come through inner impressions. Still small voices liver shivers, it comes through the word of God. You want to hear God speak? He says you open the Holy Scriptures. He said also the word of God is the greatest, most necessary, and most important thing in Christendom. He said the most important thing in the church, in in Christendom, is the word of God itself and nothing else. So strongly did Luther believe in this that a rift obviously occurred between him and the Pope. And at some point, the Pope actually excommunicated Luther from the church. Well, Luther, not to be outdone, returned the favor by calling the Pope the Antichrist. He was never one to mince words. And this came to a head at the Diet of Worms, the Diet of Worms, a a council that was pulled together in the spring of 1521. And Luther fully expected to come to this council to defend his work. He had written a bunch, a number of documents, a number of books, a number of treatises at that point, and he fully expected to come to this council to defend his work. When he came to the council, which, by the way, had an impressive gathering of church officials and city officials, they had two questions. Number one, is this your work? And they pointed to the books on the table. And number two, will you recant? To question number one, Luther said, yes, these are my writings. To question number two, he said, can you give me a day? 
And so that night, Luther, feeling the full weight of what was upon him, sensing the full implications of what he was about to do, wrestled all night with what he would say. He went back the next morning. And they said, Martin Luther, we have two questions for you. Number one, are these your writings? To which he said, yes, those are my writings. And number two, will you recant? In his now famous saying, he said this, quote, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And with that, Luther took his stand upon sola scriptura. Listen to John Calvin, who believed that the word of God itself was the verbum Dei, the actual word of God. And it alone should regulate church life. It should regulate the preaching. It should regulate the worship. It should regulate church government. It should regulate all the ordinances. He believed that the word of God alone was sufficient to regulate all of church life. And that's why he said, whenever we find the word of God surely preached and heard and administered according to the institution of Christ, there it is not to be doubted is a church of God. So do you want a church? Let them preach God's word. He later said the minister's whole task is limited to the ministry of God's word, their whole wisdom to the knowledge of his word, their whole eloquence to its proclamation. He says, ministers, when you stand up before the people of God, you do one thing. You say, thus says the Lord. He had a reverence for the word because in the word he saw the majesty of God. He saw the glory of God displayed in the scriptures. And so he began to love the scriptures and he had a great reverence and a deep affection for the scriptures And so he said, we owe to the scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from him alone and has nothing of man mixed in it, end quote. That's sola scriptura. How about Thomas Cranmer? One of the English reformers. He said this about the word. He said, quote, unto a Christian man, there can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than the knowledge of the Holy Scripture. For as much as in it is contained God's true word, setting forth his glory and also man's duty, and there's no truth nor doctrine necessary for our justification and eternal salvation, but that is or may be drawn out of that fountain and the well of truth. Therefore, as many as be desirous to enter into the right and perfect way of God must apply their minds to no holy scripture without which they can neither sufficiently know God and his will, neither their office and their duty. And as drink is pleasant to them that be dry and meat to them that be hungry, so is the reading, the hearing, the searching, and the studying of holy scriptures to them who are desirous to know God. End quote. That is sola scriptura.
And it is this doctrine, it is this conviction that the reformers took their stand upon as they began to launch the greatest reformation in the history of the church. Everything was measured against the word of God. Everything went back to the truth of Scripture. There was a genuine commitment on the part of the Reformers to go back to the sufficient, authoritative Word of God. And as a result of that, what happened was psalms were now sung in the services. And songs were written for the body to sing sound theology and doctrine. And children were catechized in the great truths of the Christian faith. And the pulpit was moved back to the middle of the building. The Bible was once read, again read in public services and Bibles were printed with study notes at the bottom. Do you have one of those today? It's because of the Reformation. Pastors began preaching through books of the Bible. They, they began to exposit the scriptures. They, they began to not rely on church tradition and the councils of the church. They began to open the word of God for the first time and preach it boldly. Listen to Calvin. If you want to get a sense as to the indomitable perseverance of these reformers and their convictions about the authority of Scripture, just listen to Calvin. To give you some scope of the idea of his, of his pulpit, he began a series on the book of Acts on August 25, 1549, and he ended it in March of 1554. Five years. I'm in good company. After Acts, he went on to the epistles. He preached 46 sermons in the Thessalonians. He preached 186 sermons in the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. He preached 86 sermons in the pastoral epistles, 43 sermons in Galatians, 48 in Ephesians. I got a few more to catch up. He did that for four years. In the spring of 1559, he began a harmony of the Gospels and was not finished with it when he died five years later in 1564. During that same last five-year period of time, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 on Deuteronomy, and 353 sermons on Isaiah. Can you imagine 353 sermons on Isaiah? Perhaps one of the clearest illustrations of his perseverance in the pulpit and his conviction and his commitment to Sola Scriptura was in Easter, on Easter Day of 1538, he was banished from Geneva. The city said, we're, we're done with you, Calvin. We've had enough of you. We don't want to hear from you anymore. Leave the city. And so he was banished from St. Peter's in 1538. After his expulsion, he went to pastor a church and to the French-speaking refugees. He returned to Geneva in 1541, just over three years from the time had passed when he was banished to when he came back, and he picked up his exposition and his preaching in the very next verse. Not missing a beat. Why? Because of sola scriptura. Because of their conviction that the word and the word of God alone was sufficient to teach and instruct and draw sinners to God and draw them into a relationship and a fellowship with him. Friends, this was radical. And we can't appreciate it today because we live in a day where it's just assumed that you preach the word of God. But you have to go back 500 years and realize that was not the case. The word of God was put under all kinds of shackles and all kinds of scaffolding that actually hid the authority of the word and the sufficiency of the word and the joy of the gospel in Jesus Christ that was hidden with all the stuff that the church had added onto it. The reformers came along and they said, No, this book. 
will change lives. And we have to free it from its shackles. And they did. What, what was it about the word of God that convinced them of that? What, what really was it? What, what did they discover about the scriptures that, that brought them to the conviction that this word was that powerful and that sufficient and that authoritative? What was it about the word of God that drew, drew them into this doctrine of sola scriptura? There's so many places we could go. We could go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. We can go to John 17, 17. We can go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We can go to Psalm 119, the passage that we read this morning. What I want to do for just a few moments this morning is to go to Psalm 19. Turn to your Bibles. Psalm 19. I believe this is one of the texts of Scripture, perhaps one of the greatest texts of Scripture to convince us of the doctrine of sola scriptura. And in an economy of words, David really sums up here the greatness of God's word. He, he sums up the authority and the sufficiency and the power of God's word. You'll notice that at the beginning of Psalm 19, he talks about general revelation. He says, the heavens, verse 1, are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That's general revelation. And so for the first half of Psalm 19, Paul is, or I'm sorry, David is, is talking here about the sufficiency of general revelation to show that there is a God. You just have to look around and you just have to see the, what God has made and you cannot walk away and say, oh, there's no God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. That's general revelation. But we know that it's not enough to know general revelation, for general revelation does not lead us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have to have specific revelation. We have to have God's word specifically teaching us about how a sinner can be rightly related to God. And so that's why special revelation is necessary. And you can see it in verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 19. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. Perhaps one of the best evidences of Hebrew parallelism in all of the scriptures. Six lines. Six parallel, similar lines. Six descriptions of the Word of God. Six characteristics of the Word of God. And six consequences of the Word of God. I want to explore these with you for just a few moments this morning because I believe an understanding of this text and many others like it will give you a, a conviction as the Reformers had on Sola Scriptura. Let me give you first, the first demonstration of the sufficiency of God's Word is that it gives life. It gives life. If you want to take notes, there's no slides today, but if you want to take notes, I'm just going to give you six. First, number one, is it gives life. You can see it in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. David here uses a, a, a term known as the, the law of the Lord. It's the Torah. It, it could refer to just the Mosaic law, but I think he's referring to the whole of Old Testament. All of the scriptures, essentially, spoken by God through the prophets. It's God's law. It's his teaching. It's his instruction. 
His truth to mankind. And he says that that law, that instruction by God is perfect. It's whole. It's complete. It's lacking nothing. It's sufficient. It's comprehensive. It covers all the subjects that you need to have covered. It lacks absolutely nothing. It is complete. So this law is perfect, and because it's perfect, look at verse 7 says, it's capable of restoring and reviving the soul. It's capable of restoring the soul. It shows you the power of the word. And it speaks here of converting, transforming, changing, returning, Imparting newness of life. That's what this book is capable of doing. It has the power and has the authority and the ability to create new life. It has the ability to turn someone back from the way that they've been going. This is the power of the word of God. He's talking here about the converting, convicting nature of the scriptures and their ability to turn sinners from their ways and to make dead sinners alive. That's what the word does. Listen, when you came to Christ, you didn't say, you know what? I think I should become a Christian. I should do that. I'll do that today. No, you didn't get saved in a vacuum. You got saved when the word of God was applied to you by the spirit of God and brought new life. That's regeneration. That's newness of life. James 1.18 says you've been brought forth by the word of truth. How were you brought forth? How were you born again? You weren't born again through your own efforts or your own devices. You were born again by the word of truth. Chris, Chris read it for us this morning. First Peter 1, 23 says, You have been brought forth, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. This is what the reformers came to see. They came to see and be convinced of the authority and the ability of the word of God to restore souls, to convert sinners, to convict sinners, and to draw them into a relationship with God. Luther was once asked to explain this phenomenon known as the Reformation. And this is what he said. He says, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, and otherwise I did nothing. While I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. That's the conviction of the reformers. You just, you just have to unleash the power of the scriptures. You don't have to go through legalistic rituals or religious activities. You don't have to get caught up in all the trappings of the councils and the sacraments and all these things that maybe someone wants to put upon you. It's the word of God alone that will grant life. The same is true today. If we want to see people experience true spiritual life, it's going to come through the word it's going to come through the scriptures. There's a second demonstration of the sufficiency of God's word. Secondly, that it grants wisdom. It grants wisdom. You can see it in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. David here calls the scriptures the testimony of God. Why are they the testimony? Because they bear witness to God. They give evidence of who he is. They speak of him. They, they give evidence of his nature and his existence. And so the word of God is the testimony of God. And he says that that word is sure. It's reliable, trustworthy, certain, dependable, unmistakable, worthy to be trusted, unwavering, immovable. 
And this testimony, which is so sure, verse 7, it says, is capable of making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. Who's the simple person? You need to know in Scripture that that word simple means open-minded, wide spaces. You ever have someone say to you, you know, I'm I'm really open-minded about that. You know what the scripture would say to them? Shut it. <laughs> Shut your mind. Stop thinking about everything and anything. I just come in and, and, and make you think anything and, and everything that you want. It's, it's not the, that you don't have the ability to just let every wind of doctrine flow in and out of you and you just kind of grab what you want. No, the scriptures tell us how the simple-minded person can be made complete. The word of God brings wisdom It's sure, it's reliable, it's a solid base upon which you can base your life and you can think God's thoughts after him, which is ultimately what God wants us to do. He doesn't want to just think about this and that and adopt this principle and that doctrine. He doesn't want us to be so open-minded that we're not discerning. No, God wants us to think his thoughts after him. How do we think his thoughts after him? It's when we allow the word of God to penetrate our minds and we meditate on it and we think upon it. Listen to how Luther described his own habit with the word. He said, for some years now, I have read through the Bible twice every year. And if you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of those branches because I wanted to know what it said and what it meant. Why do you say that? Why did he say, I've I've shaken every branch of Scripture? Because he knew that the Word of God would grant wisdom. Same is true today. That same reality is true today for us who will allow the Word into our hearts and lives. It will grant us wisdom. Thirdly, it generates joy. Look in verse 8. Not only does it give life and grant wisdom, it generates joy. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That the precepts, and this is another word for the divine scriptures, and it refers to that which is orders and charges and instructions. These are precepts. And the psalmist says that these precepts are right. And he doesn't mean that they're right in terms of not being wrong. He says that they lead to the right way. That's the idea here. These scriptures are right in that they give us direction. They give us proper path to go on. And that makes sense because Psalm 119, 105 says, The word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. These precepts are right. And what do they do? They rejoice the heart. They they, they rejoice the heart. They they bring joy. They they bring satisfaction. They, They bring a sense of Confidence in God. The reformers knew this. And they even codified it in their Westminster Confession, which was really the doctrinal statement of the Reformation. If you wonder where that came from, the shorter and the longer version of the Westminster Confession, they they ultimately came through the Protestant Reformation. And they codified all of this in that statement. And one thing they said, question number two, was what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Where does joy come from? comes from the study of the scriptures. 
It's true of us today as well. You want joy in your life? Joy's not going to come through religious ritual. Joy comes when the Word of God penetrates your heart and it brings joy to your soul. Fourth, it gives clarity. It gives clarity. Look at verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He calls the Word of God here the commandments of the Lord. And he says that they're pure, they're clear, they're lucid. They're, in our doctrinal definition, they're perspicuous, which means they're clear, they're understandable, they're, they're not difficult to comprehend. God has not stuttered. He's, he's spoken with precision and accuracy and clarity. Now, admittedly, there's some difficult areas of the Scriptures to understand, but Paul, or David here wants us to understand that this is not a hard book to comprehend. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. They're clear. They're unmistakable. Rome says common people can't understand this book, so don't give it to them. David and the reformers after him came along and said, no, not only can they understand them, they must understand them. So they began to preach it because it's clear, it's pure. They began to put it in the hands of the people. They began to teach it to the children. They began to preach the word of God through music. Why? Because the scriptures are clear and they can be understood by the common person. God didn't write an enigma. He wrote with clarity so we can understand and know what he wants us to know. Fifthly, this goes on forever, the word of God does. Look at verse 9, it says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. He calls the word of God here the fear of the Lord because it should produce in us a reverence and an attitude of worship towards God. And he says that this fear of the Lord is clean. It's spotless. This is the doctrine of inerrancy. There's no error in the scriptures. There's no, there's no parts of the word of God where you can say, well, I'm not sure about that part. I think some of it is good and dependable, but this part, no. No, the word of God is inerrant. There are not errors in it. There are not sections which are, which are filled with, with contradictions. It is clean. It is unmixed. That's what Jesus said. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Because of that, David says this Word of God goes on forever. It endures forever. You realize that the Word of God is eternal? That in heaven we will be rejoicing in the Word of God? It's eternal. It, go, it goes on forever. Psalm 119 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 160 says, every one of your righteous ordinances are everlasting. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Friends, do you understand that this book is inerrant and eternal? The reformers did. Lastly, it guarantees truth. Gives life, grants wisdom, generates joy, gives clarity, goes on forever Sixthly, it guarantees truth. Look at the end of verse 9. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. These judgments are true without error. And because of that, they are righteous all together, or they produce in us righteousness. This 
is what the reformers based the doctrine of sola scriptura upon. They said this book and this book alone will be our authority. And God used these men and these women to transform the church. They stake their life and they stake their death upon the doctrine of sola scriptura. One of my heroes during his time is a man named John Hooper who was a pastor during the time when Bloody Mary reigned on the throne in England. She hated the Protestants. She hated the Reformation. And she wanted to do everything she could to stamp out this revolution. Nearly 300 men were burned at the stake because of their love for the scriptures. One of those men was John Hooper. He was a pastor in the city of Gloucester. He was diligent in preaching the word of God. Queen Mary came along and said, you will stop. You will stop preaching the word or you will die. He refused. And he kept preaching the word of God. He kept preaching the gospel of Christ. He he kept on proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and justification by grace through faith alone for the glory of God alone. And Bloody Mary had him arrested and thrown into prison. And he was told again, either recant or die. Well, the day came. The day came for his martyrdom and he was given one last opportunity to recant of his teaching and preaching in the word of God, which he refused. And he was fastened to the stake. And of all the martyrs who died under Bloody Mary, none suffered more than John Hooper did. For 45 minutes, they tried to light the sticks. They kept going out. And for 45 minutes, he endured the flames And as Fox in the Fox's Book of Martyrs says, neither moving backward nor forward nor to any side, but only praying and beating his breast with one hand until it was burned to a stump. It was Friday, February 9, 1555, when John Hooper was martyred. Why? Because of the scriptures. Because of his refusal to cave to the whims of a queen who demanded that he stop. This is our heritage. We as a church will be a church that stands upon sola scriptura. And I would submit to you that a reformation is needed today as much as it was back 500 years ago. I would submit to you today that the pulpits of the churches of America need to be set ablaze once again by the authoritative, sufficient word of God if we're going to see lives changed for the glory of God and people come to Christ. It's not going to be through fancy theatrics, religious rituals. It's going to happen when the power of the word of God is unleashed and it changes and transforms lives. May we be a church that continues to study the Reformation. May you be an individual who loves church history, that we may love the things that the Reformers loved.
Father, thank you for a quick glimpse into our heritage. Thank you for a The opportunity, Lord, to gaze back into church history and see those who have gone before us, those in the long line of witnesses who stand before us, have given their lives for the very doctrines that we hold precious and dear. God, let us not drop the baton. Let let us not fumble the ball which has been passed to us. Instead, Father, let us Take our stand upon sola scriptura. May we be unwavering in our commitment to it. May we be indomitable in our application of it. May it all result in glory and honor and praise to you who has given your son to redeem us. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.